Welcome to Single Malt History with Gareth Russell, pouring out your serving of pure, distilled, intoxicating, and occasionally delicious history. Well, this is an exciting day for Single Malt History, as it's the first day that our podcast is available through Apple. So if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please give us a subscribe or a comment to keep this incredible, surprising and appreciated ball rolling. And if you're listening to us on Anchor FM, Google Podcast or Spotify, welcome and welcome back. Adeliza of Louvain, Queen of Bloodbaths and Beauty, is the topic of today's episode. And I swear this is accidental that for our 11th episode, I picked the career of a queen who apparently was sponsored by the number 11. You'll see what I mean in a minute. It is a crisp but beautiful morning here in Belfast where I'm recording. There's a nice sense of hopefulness in the air for the months ahead. I think so anyway, maybe that's projection. But top tip for the morning, um, if you take an English breakfast tea, which I used to, I can recommend an Irish breakfast tea if you like a stronger brew, as it were, first thing in the morning. Um, I am feeling slightly sorry for myself today, as you can maybe hear. This isn't um, a gravelly-toned voice of anything approaching a deliberate choice or authority. This is actually a slightly sore throat. And so I am choosing to believe that I have earned uh, this morning's cup of tea, when in fact I will have it pretty much all the time. Love tea before, with, in lieu of breakfast. Irish breakfast is a little stronger, darker tea. I'm obsessed, and for those of you who don't... Drunt. For those of you who don't or don't drink tea, um, suck it up. We have to listen about coffee all the time. Thrillingly interesting, I know, but it's on my mind and in my cup. Before we start, to give you an idea of what's up ahead for single malt history in the next few weeks, we'll have interviews with actress Charlotte Hope, novelist Andrew West, and historians Leander Delisle and Dr. Nicola Tallis. I'll also be bringing you episodes on the sinking of the Lusitania, the execution of Anne Boleyn, a beginner's guide to the six wives of Henry VIII, the fascinating life of the Indian Empress Nur Jahan, the truth behind the shocking secret of the Queen Mother's missing nieces, and an anniversary post for the heartbreaking massacre of the Romanovs in 1918. They're all ahead of us before the height of summer, and now on to Adeliza and a jaunty jingle before we head back 900 years. England, in the palindromic year of 1111, was, by medieval standards, prosperous and peaceful. So it was palindromic and alliterative. On the throne for the last 11 years was Henry I, a king who was nicknamed the Lion of Justice for his strict attention to due process and the law. Henry I 
was a man difficult to like but impossible to disobey. His late father, William of Normandy, the man they called the Conqueror after his invasion of England in 1066, had built an empire that straddled the English Channel, and Henry I had restored those lands so that he ruled over Normandy in what's nowadays northern France, and the English lands won by his father and secured by his brother. At the time of the Great Conquest in 1066, the surviving members of the deposed Anglo-Saxon royal family had fled, some into convents and others north, across the border into Scotland, where they were granted asylum by King Malcolm III. One of those Anglo-Saxon princesses had grown up in Edinburgh, where she eventually married King Malcolm. And when Henry I succeeded to the English throne in the south a generation later, he proposed to one of King Malcolm's daughters. That showed Henry I's priorities as well as his intelligence, for Matilda of Scotland was not just the daughter of a king who ruled on England's northern borders. It's always useful to be friends with one's neighbours. But she was also, through her mother, a direct descendant of the Anglo-Saxon royal line, who had been overthrown, yes, a generation earlier, but whom many English people continued to regard as their real royal family, in contrast to the detested invading Normans led by King Henry's father. By marrying Matilda of Scotland, Henry I ended that enmity, while also inspiring a new surge of local support for his rule. His future children with Queen Matilda would carry in their veins the blood of the conquerors and the conquered, thereby securing support from both communities. Matilda of Scotland was popular with the people of England at the time of her marriage in 1100, but 11 years later, in 1111, do you see what I mean? I will be saying 11 in my sleep for weeks after this. By 1111, she was adored. Queen Matilda's charity and religious piety made her loved with the same intensity that her husband was feared. The king and queen had two children who reached maturity, their prince, William, next in line to the throne, and his sister, Matilda the Younger, who was sent as a child to live in Germany, where she would later marry its emperor, Heinrich V. The realms of England and Normandy were peaceful, the succession to the throne was secured, and King Henry I stood at the centre of a dynastic network that circled Western Europe. Within a decade, it would all have come to terrifying ruin. Queen Matilda died of natural causes at Westminster, where she was buried in its local abbey. King Henry I was, let's put it this way, a man who did not avoid female companionship. Over the course of his life, he fathered over two dozen bastard children with a string of lovers. He had, however, by 12th century standards, at least respected his first wife, and he strongly believed, correctly, that a queen consort was an essential part of a successful monarchy. So he began to look for a new bride. His daughter, 
now presiding over the imperial court in Germany as its empress, vouched for the character and charm of Adeliza of Louvain, one of her friends who also lived at the emperor's court in the German city of Aachen. On the surface, Adeliza of Louvain seemed to fit the bill perfectly to become the new queen. Uh, documentation isn't too heavy on the ground for most 12th century personalities, and it's even scarcer for the young. What contemporary writers tended to focus on more was ancestry. Even figuring out a precise date of birth is tricky because it either wasn't recorded at the time, or it was, but the documents have since been lost in the 9th century since. All we really know about her at this stage in her life is that she was about 17 years old, maybe a year younger, maybe a couple of years older, and that she was friends with King Henry's daughter, Empress Matilda. Adelise's father was known as Godfrey the Great by some and Godfrey the Courageous by others. He was a duke in the emperor's entourage and, as Duke of Brabant, Duke of Lower Lorraine, Count of Brussels and Count of Louvain, he owned sizable territories in what is now France, Belgium and Germany. At the time, it was part of the Holy Roman Empire, a collection of states which in the 12th century covered much of modern Germany, the Low Countries, Austria and parts of Italy. Its emperor, Heinrich V, had chosen Aachen for his capital, which is why Aachen was Adelise's home for most of her early years. Adelise had lost her mother, Ida, Countess of Namur, when she was a child. Since her mother was dead and her father was often at war or joining the emperor on his many travels, Adelise had been moved to Aachen where, as mentioned, she came under the protection of its English-born Empress Matilda, who was roughly her age. The only other thing that stands out about Adelise at this point in her life is her physical appearance, a recurring theme in contemporary reports on her. We are told that she was so beautiful that she had already acquired the nickname the Fair Maid or the Fair Maiden of Brabant. And believe me, medieval chroniclers were not known for being excessively kind about physical appearances, even from princesses. With the Empress Matilda testifying to Adelise's personality and appearance, Henry I made a formal proposal of marriage. The marriage contracts negotiated between King Henry and Godfrey the Courageous were signed in the spring of 1120, about two years after the previous Queen of England's death, having spent so much time living with the Empress, who would now become her stepdaughter, Adeliza would soon journey to England to meet her new stepson, William. But history can be chilling letting loose whispers of something that looked like auguries or fate. And it made such a whisper when Adeliza of Louvain's career as Queen of England began with a shipwreck. This one terrible incident in the English Channel, which occurred a few months before she set foot in England, would radically alter Adeliza's life as it did an entire generation's. As mentioned, 
Henry I's empire was on both sides of the English Channel and 17-year-old Prince William had been in Normandy conducting his father's business when he boarded a boat known as the White Ship bound for England. Travelling in style, young William was returning with a fun crowd from the who's who of the Anglo-Norman nobility. Heirs and heiresses to the greatest aristocratic families had joined him, including two of his bastard half-siblings. Robert, described as a brave youth and dear to his father, and the Countess of Persh, both products of King Henry's long-ago extramarital affairs. The white ship smashed into rocks as it was buffeted by storms early in the voyage. The screams of the drowning were so loud the wind apparently carried them back to the Norman harbour where they could be heard by horrified townsfolk. Almost everybody on board lost their lives, including Robert the Bastard, the Countess of Persh, and William. The ship's captain made it to the surface, but upon hearing that the heir to the throne had drowned, Captain Fitzstephen apparently let himself sink to the depths again rather than face Henry I's infamous wrath. A knight and a butcher's son clambered on to floating wreckage, but the knight succumbed to hypothermia before rescue arrived. He blessed the butcher's boy, the only survivor, just before he died. The wreckage of the white ship was epicentre and metaphor for the impending wreckage of England. This was the shattering of a generation's prosperity, the upending of stability. Not only had most of the aristocracy been plunged into mourning, but England had lost its last legitimate prince. With hindsight, it's hard to disagree with the assessment of the chronicler William of Malmesbury that... No ship ever brought so much misery to England. With young William's death, his father's forthcoming marriage to Adeliza of Louvain was suddenly transformed from one supposed to provide a new queen who would give the king comfort, companionship and advice. Adeliza was now instead the focus of the utmost political anxiety. England's new queen must produce a son as quickly as possible, to replace the prince lost to the depths of the sea. As she journeyed from Aachen to London, Adeliza was progressing towards a fraught situation. Fortunately, she crossed the sea more safely than her dead stepson had, and she made it to Windsor Castle, where on the 29th of January 1120, she became Queen of England through her marriage to the 53-year-old Lion of Justice. Adeliza had married death in more ways than one. Since it was only two months since the White Ship disaster, most of the English upper classes were still in mourning. Requiem masses still rang out in solemn supplication for the souls of the drowned. It wasn't just the disaster that cast a shadow over Queen Adeliza in these early days, but also the shade of her husband's first wife, Queen Matilda, The royal household was still governed by the strict etiquette which both Henry I and the late Queen Matilda had implemented. They had even codified decorum into a set of written rules, the Domus Regis. 
Adeliza had fortunately spent her youth at one of the most splendid courts in Christendom, a place where etiquette was even more precise than it was in England. And so she comfortably and diligently learned the protocols in her new home, quickly winning praise from her husband's subjects for her elegance and dignity. Adeliza did everything expected of her. She became royal protectress and benefactor to a bevy of religious institutions, chief among them the magnificent cathedral at Winchester, as well as the convents at Waltham Osney Insham and Holy Saviour. She was patroness of both the Templar Knights, which is an order of monks come warriors that featured prominently in history and ludicrously prominently in a series of ever more demented conspiracy theories, and the Cistercian monastic order in England. Adeliza also founded and funded a hospital for lepers. King Henry's actions at this time indicate to us that he was even more impressed with his new queen than his admiring subjects were. Adeliza received an avalanche of gifts from her husband, a fortune poured into her hands. Queens at the time gained their income mainly from their estates, which they used to generate rents. Henry gave Adeliza all the estates that had been held by her predecessor, but he then kept going, adding country estates in Bedfordshire, Devon, Essex, Gloucestershire, Hertfordshire and Middlesex. Then, to supplement her already vast income, she was granted yet another manor at Barclay, before Henry then gave her the entire county of Shropshire. As if this wasn't already enough, Queen Adeliza was granted exemption from land tax, a privilege which had never been extended to either Henry's first wife or to his late mother. Yet, Despite this astronomical wealth, it was not exactly clear what Henry expected Adeliza to spend the money on. Unlike in his first marriage, Henry I had absolutely no intention of allowing Adeliza any political independence whatsoever. Henry had left his first wife in charge of the government of England on several occasions, but he never gave that responsibility to Adeliza. He refused to leave her alone for a prolonged time because unlike the first marriage, which had produced children quickly, Henry felt he and Adeliza had to be in bed with each other as often as possible in order to produce the much-needed new prince. So, when the king went to Normandy or travelled anywhere in his realm, the queen went with him, while the Bishop of Salisbury was left behind in London to run the government. On her many travels, the young queen amused herself with plays, music and poetry. She really seems to have loved the arts. And in public, it has to be said, Adeliza behaved like the Middle Ages idea of the perfect queen. In fact, she was almost the fairy tale queen in her beauty, her dignity, and in her almost theatrically submissive deference to her husband, but... If you looked closely at what she did with her money, you could see that Adeliza's swan-like beauty was matched by swan-like frantic paddling beneath the surface. The outward appearance of the perfect life increasingly seems to have been a masquerade. 
We know that she commissioned flattering accounts of her husband's career to be set to poetry, then to music, and performed in front of him to cheer him up, to distract him from his disquiet and disquieting dark tempers. Her constant companionship with her husband also meant that Adeliza had to directly confront another part of Henry's life, which the late Queen Matilda could pretend to avoid through the excuse of geography. Even with his regular visits to Adeliza's bed, and my throat has decided that now is the time, it's just not going to keep talking. Oh, now that I've stopped reading, it's fine. Great. All right. <clears throat> Back to the script. Even with his regular visits to Adeliza's bed, Henry I still found time to go hunting for other women. Another illegitimate daughter, Elizabeth, was born very shortly before Adeliza's arrival in England. She had joined the king's seven acknowledged illegitimate sons, to Roberts, to Williams, a Reginald, a Fulk and a Henry, and his illegitimate daughters, Sibylla, Gundrada, Rohisa, Juliana, Maud, Constance, Matilda, Emma and Sybil. They had all been born before Adeliza reached England, as had many of their siblings who had died prematurely. But Adeliza endured the arrival of at least one more bastard son in her husband's family, a baby christened Gilbert, and possibly three more daughters, Eustatia, Alice and Joan, although the surviving documents are vague enough that it is possible that the three girls were born before Adeliza's time as queen. Barring little Gilbert, these bastards weren't just proof of her husband's adultery, their very existence was increasingly coming to humiliate Queen Adeliza because they proved that King Henry was more than capable of fathering healthy children. Yet, as the years rolled by, Queen Adeliza did not conceive. Her embarrassment at this quote-unquote failure was magnified by the attention being paid to her husband's bastards, the eldest of them, Robert, already enjoyed the title Earl of Gloucester, now his brother Reginald became Earl of Cornwall, while many of their half-sisters had been married into the European nobility. Constance married the Vicomte de beaumont le Alice married the Constable of France, and Justicia married the Seneschal de Montmorel. And worst of all, from Adeliza's perspective, the king's eldest bastard daughter, Sibylla, was herself already a queen, having been married to Alexander, King of Scots. King Henry had produced a small army of bastard children, as well as four with his first wife, although, as mentioned, only two had reached maturity. But it was therefore apparently clear to everyone that the fault for the royal marriage's failure lay with Adeliza. In fact, as events were to show, the issue of why Adeliza and Henry failed to conceive together is not necessarily so clear-cut. It was not from a lack of effort on Henry's part, certainly, since when he was not in other women's beds, he was in Adeliza's with military regularity. However, with the exception of the birth of his bastard son, Gilbert, none of the illegitimate children's birth can definitively be dated to the period in which Henry was married to Adeliza. As mentioned, the other three possible candidates, Eustatia, Joan and Alice, 
are just as likely to have been born during the king's first marriage rather than his second. Is it possible then that as he entered middle age, Henry I's famous potency was beginning to wane? And that was the reason why his second queen failed to conceive the heir everyone was so desperately hoping for. Henry, of course, entertained no such doubts, and his generosity and love for his queen began to evaporate. As their marriage approached its 10th anniversary, even the impeccably dignified Queen Adeliza was finding it difficult to maintain the pretense that everything was all right. She turned increasingly to religion to find an answer for her agony. We know from a surviving letter that at one point she expressed her misery to the Archbishop of Tours, who, with a brutal lack of tact, wrote back that there was nothing to do in the face of God's will. Maybe the Queen should console herself by spending more time with the poor, the Archbishop suggested, by adopting them as her spiritual children, since she clearly couldn't have any of her own biologically. After all, as the Archbishop wrote to the Queen, it is more blessed to be fertile in spirit than the flesh. Observers noted that the ageing king is much weakened by strenuous labours and family anxieties. Confronting mortality, Henry I fell back on a very shaky plan B. As he did so, events began to move rapidly beyond Adeliza. She became a political irrelevance. A shimmering one, no doubt, but unambiguously irrelevant to nearly everybody in her husband's government. Realising that something would have to be done to secure a peaceful transition of power, Henry began to prepare to hand the inheritance over to his only legitimate child, the Empress Matilda. Her husband, Heinrich V, had died, and with no children, the Empress had no reason to stay in Germany. As Heinrich's wife, Matilda had proved herself a capable, even brilliant, regent, who deputised for her husband while he travelled, winning widespread acclaim for her intelligence and skill in government. So Henry I invited his widowed daughter back to England, where he planned to make her the country's first female ruler in her own right. On the one hand, seeing more of her friend and chaperone from her days at Aachen must have been a pleasant experience for Adelisa, an emotionally happy reunion. But on the other, the frequent presence of the widowed empress in London highlighted that thanks to Adelisa's failure to produce a son, the king now had to embark upon the unthinkable policy of leaving the kingdom to a woman. For a brief time, the king did seem to get cold feet, and he toyed with the idea of leaving the throne to his nephew Stephen, Count of Mortain. Lord Stephen was handsome, he was popular, he was undeniably brave. But in the end, Henry I preferred his own daughter to his sister's son. So the monarchy's attention shifted back onto the Empress Matilda. It was she who was to inherit once the Lion of Justice was dead. To understand medieval politics, 
one needs, I think, to fully appreciate that it was a culture of display. It was all about who was seen doing what, when everything was visual. Bear in mind, literacy rates were very low. So it wasn't so much about documents. It was about ceremonies, um, architecture, art, fashion, coats of arms, um, all this kind of very bright colour and ritual and symbolism comes from uh, how medieval politics were expressed and solidified. The feudal system, which is basically both the class and government system in England at the time, was one in which land, wealth and protection trickled down the social hierarchy, with each class interlocked with the one directly above and below itself by oaths and promises. The upper levels protected the lower, who in return gave obedience for protection. Taxes were paid, which were money in peace or soldiers in war. With this in mind, Henry I invited the great landowners in his empire to a ceremony at Windsor Castle, where, with his nephew Lord Stephen helping to lead them, they all swore that they would accept Matilda as their overlord after Henry's death. Queen Adeliza attended the ceremony at her husband's side, here in the castle where they had married. She watched the ceremony that implicitly yet unambiguously declared that her queenship had been a failure by the standards of nearly everybody around her. There is an old unpleasant legend that Henry began to treat Adeliza badly in private at this time. We don't know whether that's true or not. Uh, I've mentioned the, the documentary problems. It seems more likely, given what we know of the royal couple's itinerary, that Henry kept trying to impregnate the Queen even at this late stage. Of course, both theories are tragically not necessarily incompatible. Just because Henry was sleeping with his wife doesn't mean he felt the need to be kind to her in public, but who knows? Rumours of his contempt for her may just have been idle gossip, the kind that always attaches itself to the lives of the well-known. Whatever the truth, she was almost certainly at his deathbed on the 1st of December, 1135. If not, she had certainly been with him right up to the end. The royal couple and their entourage were in Normandy as the winter winds and snow battered the castle. Already in poor health, the king succumbed to accidental food poisoning after a banquet. The story goes that death followed a large helping of lamprey eels which caused him to fall ill. No longer able to fight off the infection or the loss of fluids, Henry lingered long enough to say that he had changed his mind about leaving the throne to his daughter Matilda. He had been right initially. The male line should take precedence. The next monarch should in fact be Stephen. Henry I was about 67 years old at the time of his death. The Lion of Justice had reigned for 35 years, an extraordinarily long time by the standards of the Middle Ages. His body was taken back across the channel to the monastery at Reading, where he was buried with instructions that the monks were to pray for the salvation of my soul and that of King William my father and King William my brother and William my son and Queen Matilda my mother and Queen Matilda my wife. The name of childless Adeliza was absent from the list of prayer requests. Quite probably it was because unlike everybody else on that list, she was not dead yet. 
So I don't really um, hold too strongly with theory that her absence from the prayer list indicates that Henry had taken the sting of their failure with him into the grave. But again, we don't know what was happening in the innermost reaches of his heart. What we do know is that Adeliza was now at last released from both her husband's control and the exquisite agony of her position as queen. She was now Queen Dowager, an independently wealthy woman, a very wealthy woman in her own right, that unique liberation that came to upper-class widows in the Middle Ages. Still extraordinarily beautiful, and not yet thirty, she donned mourning for her late husband, and announced her intention to go on religious retreat to the convent at Wilton. While the Dowager Queen was safe behind the nunnery's walls, the news spread through England and Normandy about King Henry's deathbed change of heart. Stephen was rushed to Westminster, where, on the feast day of his patron saint, Stephen the Proto-Martyr, he was crowned king. The Empress Matilda, by that point pregnant by her second husband, was too close to her due date to challenge her cousin. So it looked as if the coup had gone off without a hitch. Henry I's last wishes had been fulfilled. Things were back on track to the path of stability. King Stephen, his French wife and their son Eustace, at last a clear heir to the throne, celebrated in splendour. But by Easter, when the new royal family were in residence at Oxford for the festive season, Adeliza had still not come to bend the knee to the new king. As soon as she left the convent where she had mourned her husband, Adeliza went north with her household staff. She went in the opposite direction to where Stephen was keeping Easter with such magnificence. Adeliza's long journey to the northern counties, to one of the estates King Henry had left to her as his widow, was in many ways the first step towards war. And given that it was gentle Adeliza, it surprised many people that this first step was taken by her. Adeliza's failure to pledge loyalty to the new regime was damning a thunderous silence. Rumours had already begun to seep out, whispers that Henry I had not in fact changed his mind on his deathbed, that Stephen hadn't even been mentioned by his dying uncle, who instead had quite clearly confirmed that he still wanted Matilda to follow him on the throne. So as Adeliza evaded going to Stephen's side to swear fealty to his rule, the whispers that Stephen had in fact stolen his cousin's crown grew into a shout. Across the channel, safely delivered of a son, the Empress Matilda had no intention of seeing her birthright permanently taken from her. Raising an army, she returned to England, but she would need a base to launch her war to take the crown. She would need somewhere to go when she landed, somewhere that would welcome her, somewhere that would help her evade capture by Stephen's soldiers. Adeliza provided it for her, throwing open the gates to her great castle at Arundel. 
With Matilda's arrival in England, King Stephen started to hemorrhage allies. Queen Adeliza's very public support for the Empress indicated that the story of Henry I's last-minute change of heart was bogus. The foundational text, if you like, of Stephen's whole regime was a lie, an invention. Now, whether Stephen knew that, or just as possible, was tricked by those around him into believing that's what his uncle had said, we don't know. But Adeliza was in a position to know, and she never wavered from her stance that Stephen was not renominated for the throne by his dying uncle. The aristocracy, the church, the people of England split down the middle between those who supported Matilda and those who said that regardless of what the old king had said, the male line of the royal family in Stephen and his son Eustace should have precedence. The war began, a civil war so brutal, so hideous, that it was simply referred to later as the Anarchy. The chronicles of the time record the agony it inflicted. Normandy, invaded by the armies of the Empress's husband Geoffrey, have suffered continually from terrible disasters and daily feared still worse. The whole province was without an effective ruler. The Gesta Stefani, a chronicle sympathetic to King Stephen, tells us of villages standing solitary and almost empty because the peasants of both sexes and all ages are dead. Another contemporary remembered an England that became full of slaughter, fire and rape, cries of anguish and horror on every side. We are told that the great castles of the realm were now filled with devils and evil men. Henry I's beloved justice system couldn't function. After all, the government itself barely existed. And as royal justice collapsed, the common people it had protected bore the brunt of some landowners' lawless depravity. They put them in prison, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle wrote, and tortured them with indescribable torture to extort silver and gold. They were hung by the thumbs or by the head, and chains were hung on their feet. Knotted ropes were put around their heads and twisted till they penetrated to the brains. They put them in prisons, where there were adders and snakes and toads, and killed them like that. Some they put in an instrument of torture, that is, in a chest which was short and narrow and not deep. And they put sharp stones in it, and pressed the man, so that he had all his limbs broken. Many landowners also regularly switched sides in the war, which added even more to the sense of instability, insecurity and uncertainty. Many of them had been those who pressured Stephen into taking the throne in the first place, but they frequently and easily abandoned him, just as they had abandoned their oaths to Matilda once the war turned. Little wonder that Stephen cried out, When they have chosen me king, why do they abandon me? It was a time of such widespread misery and unanswered prayers that an English chronicler famously heartbreakingly wrote, 
To till the ground was to plough the sea. The earth bare no corn, for the lands were all laid waste by such deeds, and men said openly that Christ slept and his saints. As England endured this brutal and savage war for the next two decades, Adeliza's sympathies remained firmly with her stepdaughter. But two years into the war, the Dowager Queen Adeliza married again. We don't know much about the romance leading up to her second wedding, and I wish we did, because it was clearly not just a great love story across the classes, but also a love across the barricades, as it were. For Adeliza's new husband was as strong a supporter of King Stephen as Adeliza was of the Empress Matilda. His name was William Daubigny. He had been a courtier in the entourage of her first husband, so he must have known Adeliza for some time, although when they first met, their relationship would have been defined as the distant and reverential one between a courtier and a queen, especially given how strict etiquette was under Henry I. Now, with the old king's death, Adeliza and William's relationship changed. They fell in love, for although William was certainly wealthy, whatever way one looked at it, the Dowager Queen was certainly marrying down by wedding someone outside her own class. We do know that William Daubigny was a very handsome and athletic man. He was about five years younger than Adeliza, and he was a famous jouster who had once attracted the attentions of another widowed queen, Adelaide of Maurienne, Queen Mother of France, who was dazzled by him when she saw him in action at a joust in Paris. I do think being known for attracting the attentions of dowager queens is a pretty niche skill set. He was also a skilled fighter, um, exceptionally brave. With their combined fortunes after the wedding, he began building a castle for him and Adeliza to live in, Castle Rising. While it was being built, their first marital home was Adeliza's palatial residence at Arundel Castle on the Norfolk coast, and which, truth be told, she does seem to have preferred in the long run. Adeliza's second marriage does appear to have been on a much more equal footing than her first. Despite his loyalty to King Stephen, William did not pressure Adeliza to abandon her support for the Empress, even as the war over the throne became more bloody and brutal. In return for William's support, King Stephen was prepared to overlook Adeliza's affection for his greatest enemy. Stephen even ennobled William, making him first Earl of Lincoln and then Earl of Arundel, giving Adeliza yet more titles as a countess twice over, although she showed herself fairly reluctant to abandon the original higher one that she had from her first marriage. She was still being referred to as the Queen of Louvain for the rest of her life. I would argue that Adeliza's retention of her royal title as Queen Dowager really should not be read as a slight of William, but rather uh, as conforming to the expectations of her class and her generation. 
There was also the added tickle that since Adeliza didn't recognise Stephen as a lawful king, she couldn't recognise his right to create any new earldoms, even if they were going to her beloved husband. And I, for me, I do think that was a major reason why she didn't um, lean in too much to the titles as Countess of Lincoln. Then, as the national misery of the 1130s and 1140s accelerated, Adeliza found yet more happiness with William. She was pregnant. Baby Rayner was followed in the Queen of Louvain's nursery by his brothers William, Henry, Geoffrey, and their three sisters, Alice, Olivia, and Agatha. Having spent years without any baby as queen, as a countess, Adeliza was the mother of seven healthy children. It's one of those improbable occurrences that can make history more surprising than any fiction. And through these children, Adeliza and William were ancestors of some of the great houses of the English, Welsh and Irish aristocracy. Sadly, by the end of 1150, when she was in her late 40s, Adeliza's health began to deteriorate rapidly. Sensing that her death was near, she again made her decision to retreat to a time of prayer. She bade painful farewell to her husband and children, after which she crossed the sea to her native Brabant, entering the convent at Aflagum to spend her final weeks preparing to meet God. She died at the height of spring in 1151, and William never remarried. Adeliza of Louvain, one-time Queen of England, was buried next to her first husband, the late king, because that was the appropriate thing to do. And as Adeliza had shown through a political career, the needs of propriety were something she had nearly always put first. Whatever it might have cost her, Adeliza held the duties of being a queen as something close to sacred. She had remained loyal to her first husband as an epic political crisis grew around their marriage. And supporting her stepdaughter Matilda's claim to the English throne after Henry's death had been something which Adeliza had done at great cost and convenience to herself, the easiest thing for Adeliza to do in 1136, overwhelmingly the easiest thing for her to have done, would have been to follow most of the other great landowners by bending the knee to King Stephen. She did not do that. For me, there is something magnificent about the courage that took, and there's also something uh, magnificent and endearing about her subsequent marriage for love to a noble and courageous man with whom she fundamentally disagreed politically. With him, she had her family, and in a curious twist of fate, their descendants would one day wear the crown of the Queens of England again. These women, whose names were Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, were to descend from the offspring of Adeliza's second marriage, and like their famous ancestress, they too were to feel the agony of being unable to produce a son for an English king. Adeliza of Louvain, one of the famed beauties of the Middle Ages, did not have the direct political independence of Matilda of Scotland, the queen before her, or the two queens of England who followed her. She was nonetheless a person who I find fascinating. 
the witness who became the agent at the epicentre of a crisis, a war, a crucible of beauty and bloodshed. With that, thank you for your time. Uh, And please don't forget to like, share, subscribe before our episode next week, when I'll be sitting down with actress Charlotte Hope, star of the hit series The Spanish Princess, in which she played the lead role, Queen Catherine of Aragon. This is Charlotte's first ever podcast interview, so I'm very honoured and excited to share it with you. And believe me, if you're one of the Spanish princess's millions of fans interested in an actress process or the Tudor royals, you're not going to want to miss this interview, even though we do laugh a lot in it. So tune in next week. And until then, I hope you and yours have a great week. Bye.